0: Welcome to GradCast, the official podcast of the Society of Graduate Students at the University of Western Ontario. Hello, everybody, and welcome to GradCast. GradCast is the official podcast of the Society of Graduate Students here at Western University. I'm your host, Alex Mozinski, and I'm joined by co-host Romina Adam today. How are you doing today, Ramina? I'm good. How are you? Fine, thank you. Today, we are joined by guest Caroline Strang who is a PhD student in psychology. Caroline, can you tell us a little bit about what you do? Um,
1: Well, I study bumblebees. Um, and uh, at the moment I am trying to develop a laboratory task that models some of the learning that bumblebees have to do in the wild uh, to collect nectar and pollen and perform their job for us as pollinators Um, and I'd like to develop a a model of that in the lab that allows us to uh, really study their learning and study the effects of stressors on their learning
0: um, and help us to conserve them as pollinators. So they have to learn how to pollinate. So pollination is a really important process for every part of our daily lives, I guess. Like we we rely heavily on bees learning how to pollinate flowers for a ton of our agriculture. Um, How how much do they need to learn for this process to happen?
1: Yeah. So we think a lot of bees as uh, really simple automatons with everything driven by um, innate behaviors. Um, But when you think about it, um, a bee, when it leaves its colony, it has to learn how to navigate to a flower. It has to learn which flowers are going to provide nectar and pollen, Um, nectar and pollen being the two resources that they need to sustain their colony. Um, And then when they get to that flower and they recognize that those resources are there, they have to figure out how to extract those resources from a flower. And some flowers, uh, those resources are presented right on the surface of the flower, um, and it's very easy to access. And others are much more complicated. So they might have to move petals around um, or, uh, you know, manipulate their body within the flower to collect nectar and pollen. Um, and bumblebees, in fact, even do what we call buzz pollination, where they have to vibrate at a certain pitch to trigger the release of pollen in the flower. Um, so a lot of those behaviors, such as moving petals around and this buzz pollination, are innate Motor patterns, but they have to learn which ones uh, will successfully access nectar and pollen from particular flowers.
2: So, when they're born, when these bees are born, do they immediately get like really excited by the scent of nectar? Like, are they like, yes, this is what I'm here for? This is what I gotta do. I have to like get to that flower. How does that work?
1: Um, well, when bees um, are first born within the colony so um, when they hatch they will collect nectar and pollen within the colonies to sustain themselves for um, a varying length of time depending on the bee species Um, in bumblebees it will be a couple of days um, or longer so while they're in the colony they're being exposed to the sense of nectar and pollen that is being brought into the colony by bees that are already foraging. Okay. So when a bee goes out and collects nectar and pollen, it's bringing the sense of those flowers back into the colony. So these bees that are um, newly enclosed, is what we call it when a bee um, is hatched, uh, as their wings are drying and they're um, developing, they can Uh, learn those scents, Um, so then when they go out foraging in the wild, which is what we call it when bees go out collecting um, nectar and pollen, uh, they are familiar with those scents and they'll seek them out.
2: Cool. So it is primarily a scent thing, that when they go out into the wild, they smell it and that can kind of guide them to... An area with the flowers that they can pollinate?
1: Yeah, scent is really very strong for bees, but they do use vision a lot. So um, a bee, a pairing of, uh, of nectar with a particular color only needs to happen a couple of times before a bee will know that pairing. They can learn that very rapidly, and it's the same thing with odor.
0: So I guess there's, there's bee memory that we're talking about and bee learning itself. Uh, in terms of learning, do they do learning through, I guess, trial and error as well as through watch and see and observe? Or is it mostly through trial and error that they learn?
1: Um, Well, both. Um, They learn themselves through trial and error. Um, And in bumblebees, they learn through what we call local enhancement. So if they see another bee on a flower, it draws their attention to that flower, and then they will go and investigate the flower themselves and collect nectar and pollen. Um, so that's bumblebees. Um, there are some species of bees, like the honeybee, uh, where they have a dance language. So they actually learn directly from other foragers. Those foragers will come back to the colony, and they'll do their dance, um, which is the honeybee language, that tells the honeybees in the colony where that source of, of nectar is. Um, and then they, they know how to, how to fly out and find it.
0: So they fly in a specific like, pattern and that's their way of of rallying the troops and saying, hey guys over here, check this out?
1: Yeah, um, so they're not flying, they're actually sort of running in the colony on the colony surface um, within within the hive Um, yeah, and they they, um do these runs uh, in a particular pattern. And the angle at which they do the run um, and the length of time that they do it indicates the direction and distance
0: of their um, nectar source. Okay. So I guess in addition to that, my understanding is that bees and other uh, insects would communicate through pheromones. So... For anyone listening, a pheromone is a biological agent given off by one animal, uh, which affects another animal of the same or even a different species. Um, so bees and pheromones, do they use those for navigation purposes and communication purposes uh, in learning?
1: Um, I, I don't know, in fact. I know that ants often use pheromones in um, foraging, so they'll leave a pheromone trail that other ants will follow. Bees, because they're flying, um, I suspect it, it's less important. They do use them inside the colony um, to establish dynamics within the, within the colony, so the queen will um, express pheromones which suppress reproduction in the workers um, but in terms about foraging um, they certainly can leave scents on flowers but in terms of leaving trails to something not in the way that an ants would because they're flying yeah I guess
0: yeah. it would just get blown away in the wind hmm
2: so going back to your research, so what exactly do you do in the lab with the bees? What is your task? Yeah.
1: So the task um, is intended to model pushing petals apart in a flower. So basically what it is is a tube that has a little door that goes in, and the bee needs to push the door open to access nectar on the other side. So it's basically door opening in bumblebees.
2: Wow. And what does that... what? What do you infer from that? What do you learn from this task? So what we're looking at
1: is if they do it repeated times, do they get better at it? Um, and what strategies do they use when they encounter the door? So if they encounter this obstacle, um, are they all using the same strategies, which would suggest that those are all innate behaviors. That's their innate behavioral repertoire when they encounter um, uh, an obstacle or to in well foraging. Um, and then we want to know if they get better with time to see if they're learning. And ultimately, what we'd like to do um, is see if that pattern of behavior matches up with what they do in the wild to see if this does work as a model of um, what we call flower handling or learning to extract um, nectar from flowers.
2: So, is that what you found? Did you find that it's an innate behavior? So, we're still working on
1: analyzing the, the data. Um, what we, from looking at it right now, um, there's a lot to indicate that it is learning, similar to flower handling, in the sense that they get better with repeated trials. Um, and they do all come at it with the same behavioral repertoire. So there's a set of behaviors that they'll engage in, things like pushing on the door or biting at the door. and every single bee will engage in those behaviors. So it seems as though when they encounter this obstacle, that's their set of behaviors. Um, but they learn at different rates um, which one will be most successful, um, which is also uh, very similar to in the wild. Some bees are faster learners and better foragers than others.
2: So how come you choose to study this in bees? What what brought you to being like, I'm gonna test bee behavior, <laughs> my bees, um, or bumblebees specifically? Bumblebees, <laughs> um, well, I, I think, as most people
1: know, bees are incredibly important. So it's not really hard to get motivated to study a species where you know that your work will be directly applicable Mm -hmm. to society at large. But um, myself, I was at a conference when I was an undergrad, and I saw a talk on honeybees that showed honeybees discriminating between two stimuli uh, based on number. And at the time, I didn't know anything about bees, and I was just blown away at the thought that bees could, um, I'm not going to say count, it's it's a numerosity judgment, it's not counting per se, but the idea that that sort of um, complex learning could go on in such a a, a tiny little... um, insect was amazing to me. So I was hooked on the idea of studying bees and then um, my supervisor here at Western, David Sherry, had worked with bumblebees in the past. So I linked in with him and and we
0: came up with some projects and that's how it happened.
2: Really cool.
0: So if all the bees will try to learn, and there is variability in how, I guess, smart they are. Mm-hmm. Um, how much genetic variability is there from bee to bee? Is it kind of like an ant colony where they're all very similar genetically, or uh, are they are they very variable? Um, so um, all
1: of the bees in my bumblebee colonies um, are basically identical. Oh. Um, they all have the same, same mother, same father. So they're all sisters.
0: So that's what I figured. Um, so given that, how much behavioral variability is there? Like, do you get some that are stingers and they'll get you, um, and you know others that are more docile bees?
1: Amazingly enough, yes. Um, uh, There's a lot of behavioral variability. Um, And it's hard to say what that is. If it's something uh, that we think of as personality, um, like you would have in in a dog, Um, or if it's just motivation at that time, they do different jobs within the colony. And sometimes it's hard to know what job a bee is doing. And depending on the job, they have different um, hormone levels and different gene activation, which could trigger different behaviors. So a bee that's doing the job of um, a nurse bee in the colony is likely to be very docile. Um, A nurse bee being one that just takes care of um, uh, eggs and larvae and pupae within the colony. Um, And a guard bee who's job at that point in time is to guard the entrance to the nest is likely to be highly reactive, and that's dependent on gene activation and hormone levels. So um, whether they have personalities uh, within those different tasks, it's hard to say, but a bee that you encounter might behave completely differently than a different bee, and it
0: might appear like a personality difference if that extensively. So in terms of these nectar attaining tasks that you give, Mm -hmm. do you test all the different bees independently of their role or is it specifically the type of bee that would be a foraging bee? Um,
1: Yeah, we exclusively study foraging bees just because those are the ones who are motivated to go and collect nectar. Um, So it's very hard to test a bee on a behavioral task if um, they aren't willing to go out and collect nectar. So we're limited to testing foragers. Okay.
2: Cool. Um, I'm still interested in how you, like, what your lab experience is like. So I'm picturing you in a room with like just a bunch of bees buzzing around everywhere. Like, how do you do? You find it difficult working with bees, and how how many do you have? And
1: yeah, so uh, that's not that far off, depending really? on on the study I'm doing. Yeah, so we initially developed this task by me just being in a room full of bees. So um, the bumblebees that I use are ordered through the mail, believe it or not, um, through a company called BioBest, who supplies um, bumblebees to greenhouses for greenhouse pollination. Um, And the colony, when it arrives, is about 25 workers and then one queen. And it will grow to be somewhere between 100 and 200 bees. Um, and they are just flying loose in a room. Um, So I put on a bee suit and I go in and I have um, my apparatus that I take into the room. Now they're trained to a feeder, so they know that um, the location where I'm gonna put up my apparatus has uh, a nectar solution in it. And then I put my apparatus there and then they're required to enter into the apparatus and open the door to get that that nectar. But it, it is very much me standing in a room full of bees.
0: Was that scary at first? Because I'm just imagining the scene from Wicker Man where Nicolas Cage, you know, is screaming, no, not the bees, and they put, like, the head, the thing over, and he's full of bees. Was it at all intimidating the first time you walked in? Or
2: So...
1: Amazingly, I used to go in the bee room without a bee suit oh gosh. because I thought they weren't very aggressive. And then I was stung a few times, and, um, and now I do wear the bee suit. are not It's not as though you're walking into the room and just, like, fending off bees. Um, it's a fairly large room, so having 200 bees in there, it, it's, it's not that many. Um, but sometimes um, if I bump the colony and then they come out thinking I'm a threat, they'll sit on the front of my mask and, and they'll buzz at me and they'll try to put their stinger through my mask. Oh, wow. And that is very disconcerting. Even if you feel protected in the bee suit, it, it, it's very, very alarming. So it's, it's difficult to test when that's happening. Um, but for the most part, they're not very aggressive. So it, it's pretty, I can spend hours in there and it's, it's not stressful.
0: Okay. Um, kinda of wanted to get back to the variability of the work uh, with, with bees, because I work with rats, um, and they are supposed to be all genetically identical, and then you have totally different behaviors. Some are really nice and like to be held, some try to run away no matter what, some just you know don't like the, the cut of your jib, I guess, and will like other people better than you. Um, so I guess in animal research, um, there's a lot of variability, even when genetically they're identical. Um, and I know that you do other animal research as well, so, um, how variable do you think your other animal research is, and maybe you could talk about that a little bit, because I know that they're probably not genetically identical animals.
1: Mm -hmm. Um, so, in terms of compared to the bumblebees, or just in general, because I, I study a number of different species, um, in general,
0: so I, I know that you, you do research on dogs and horses as well, um. Yeah, um,
1: so, I mean, I I have a similar experience to you that you find that your um, animals have uh, a lot of variability. Um, So the other species that I work with are horses and uh, my dogs themselves do research, though I don't do the experiments. Um, And and also uh, chickadees and rats and pigeons. So um, I would say that Uh, Pigeons, we sort of assume that there's no um, behavioral variability at all because we put them in an operant box. We don't even watch them run. Um, But I actually, while working with them, found that there is a great deal. Some of them stress a lot in the box. um, So you have to be careful that their routine doesn't change before they go in to make sure they run through the program and and things like that. Um, And then the chickadees are highly variable. They're all wild caught. so their um, life histories are probably dramatically different as well. Um, and there's everything from motivational differences um, to learning differences. Um, some of them are very aggressive. Some of them um, are pretty docile, just very similar to rats, I would say. Um, yeah, largely across all the species, I'd say that there's motivational and, yeah personality differences or personality, we'll call it personality. But,
2: uh, so what do you study in these other animals then? If you don't mind me asking, I know there's a bunch. <laughs> so um, yeah. It's,
1: yeah. it's pretty variable. Um, unfortunately, it's hard for me to integrate them. But um, so in the chickadees, um, chickadees are an amazing species because they store food. And they remember the locations of hundreds of different pieces of stored food. Uh, so they're a wonderful memory model for spatial memory. So the experiment that we're, we are doing in them right now um, looks at spatial memory and the effect of neurogenesis or the birth of new neurons um, in the hippocampus on spatial memory and the retention of those memories. Um, and then in rats, um, I'm looking at information seeking, um, which you can think of To us we know um, when we want a piece of information or we know that a piece of information is important, we'll go out and find that piece of information. So if you're studying for a test, you know you have to go and find the material and learn it and then you'll do well on the test. So we're seeing if rats will do something similar to that um, in a very, very basic form. Um, And then in pigeons, uh, we're looking at the interaction between reference memory, um, or a lot of people would refer to it as long-term memory. Um, and working memory, um, which you think of as sort of the information that you need on hand to solve the task you're immediately engaging in. Um, So we're looking at how those two systems interact and whether or not they are in fact functioning as different memory systems. Um, And Is that all species? Horses. (laughs) Um, So in horses, I'm looking at spatial memory, again, um, just because they are a grazing species, so um, the requirements for them in terms of spatial memory would be much different than something like um, a rat that's a scavenger, um, and seeing how uh, that sort of evolutionary history has shaped their spatial memory compared to other species
2: that's really cool that's, <laughs> it's, it's a lot of
1: different that's
0: a, a lot yeah that.
2: <laughs> it's really cool that you get to experience um, working with all these different kinds of species that's so unique and really cool um, so since you interact with all these different types of animals um, how do you how do you feel about animals in research I mean you're working with so many on they're very on different levels of like the evolutionary scale yeah so how do you,
1: yeah it's it's really' um, It's hard because it's different for each species. So I would say something like the chickadee, where the research we're doing really is as a model for memory and neuroscience and is quite invasive because we need to sacrifice the animals at the end of the experiment. Something like that, um, I'm very much an an advocate for working for models where we don't need to use those species anymore. Um, And it's very difficult research to do anytime you need to sacrifice an animal. Uh, So I find that hard to do, and I yeah, advocate working towards not needing to do that sort of research in the future. Some of the other research that I do is entirely different. So the research on the bumblebees or on the horses, I'm really interested in that particular species. So it's not working as a model. It's research on that species. Um, so in that sense, um, it's I, I don't have any sort of moral trouble dealing with it because, um, it's not invasive. Um, and the only way to get at those questions is to do research on those species. Um, so I think that, yeah, um, it's always difficult to do anything invasive on an, in an animal. Um, and I think that if we, if there are researchers who don't find it difficult, then that's where there's a trouble, but as long as you're, you're really recognizing. Um, that uh, it is a sacrifice to have to do that research on those animals, and you feel like the the question is important, then I think
0: it's worth it. Yeah, I actually, I fully agree. Like, it's uh, for me, it's been a very difficult uh, transition to make from working with cell culture, um, where I mean they're they're just cells grown in a dish. Mm-hmm. And um, I just wanted to probably as one last question, really ask. Have you had any trouble, um, or h- how have you found justifying animal research to other people in your life? I know that my own family, um, was they, they really hated me for a little while um, for doing it, until I, I described really what I was doing to them and why it was important, um, and then they started to, to appreciate it a lot more, and now they're, they're really okay with it. How's that experience been for you?
1: Yeah. Yeah. Um... Uh, similar depending on on who I I talk to in my family and of my friends, I think that, uh, first and foremost, most people who meet me know that I love animals. So they know that I would never want to, you know, subject an animal to anything um, aversive unless I really felt strongly that it was was the best way to find the answer to a very important question. Um, So I think because I... I come at it from that, and, and my friends and family know me as that person. I don't have a lot of trouble justifying it, because I feel like they, they believe that the fact that I'm engaging in it is sort of justific- justification enough. Um, I think that, um, yeah, it's it's difficult um, to justify ever sacrificing animals. Um, but. Sometimes that's the only way to answer a question. And I think that most people in society recognize that. So if you, if you present it as, you know, you love working with animals, love animals, but feel like this is really the only way to have access to a question that needs answering, I think most people are okay with it. Um, yeah, and I am okay with it myself, which is, you know, as an animal lover, it's, it's very important.
0: So, based on what we've been saying about animal research itself and, I guess, uh, how, how animals have to be treated uh, and the quality of life that they have to receive if they're being housed for animal research purposes, um, there's pretty strict rules about that. Um, how would you say that compares to, I guess, animal treatment for pets uh, that a lot of people have that you've came across in, in your own experiences? Because I feel that a lot of people who have pets feel like they're being great to their pets. But at the same time, if you're chasing your cat around and squeezing its tail and it really doesn't like it and you're just having a great time and you think, oh, this cute, cuddly creature, um, but really you're, you're scaring it. Um, how does that really compare to your experiences?
1: Yeah, I think um, that I would agree in a lot of uh, situations that animals have for research are being cared for considerably better than than pets a lot of the time. Um, They certainly get, I would argue, better veterinary care um, because we're highly monitored and um, we monitor our animals' health health, um, and also have endpoints that are a lot stricter than people with their pets. Sometimes pets go through... think i mean this is something that can be argued but go through a fair bit of suffering for the sake of their owners who and we have very strict endpoints so that's something i really like about animal research um is is how controlled it is Um, in terms of housing conditions i think that again is very species dependent i think there are some species that do really well in laboratory conditions so something like a rat if it's socially housed um i think that They tend to do really well in labs, Um, and a lot of them are engaging in behavioral experiments which can be enriching. So the rats that I work with, um, they get to come out and you know spend a few minutes hanging out with me, and then go and run around on a maze collecting sugar pellets. It's a pretty good life, um, and you know compared to some people I know who have pet rats where those rats will just sit in a cage and not engage with people at all, um, I I think that my rats are probably pretty happy. Um, so. For certain species, it works really well. There are other species where housing con- conditions aren't necessarily as good, um, and uh, they aren't getting that uh, social interaction, or um, something invasive is being done, which you know can can cause um, stress. And then there are other animals, like the chickadees, we bring in from the wild. So we're lucky at Western to have a spectacular avian facility, the Advanced Facility for Avian Research, um, where our housing conditions are as much like the wild as we can possibly make it to minimize stress on the animals. Um, But obviously they have come in from the wild and and how people feel about bringing animals in from the wild um, differs. Um, comparing it to my own pets, um, my pets engage in research. Um, my dogs come into the dog cognition lab here um, and they spend their days uh, doing timing tasks or um, you know, learning how to count, if you want to call it that, um, and searching around in buckets for food, testing their spatial memory, and these are all enriching experiences for my dogs. Um, so I think one thing we don't talk about enough in terms of animal research research is how it can be enriching if they're doing um, cognitive tasks Um, so yeah I think again because I work with so many different species and I see so many different aspects of animal research it is highly dependent um, on what research you're doing Uh, but I think that some things that people don't understand when they think about animal research, is how much we do invest in animal care, veterinary care, enriching environments. Um, People come through an inspector and facility and make sure that we're doing everything we can um, to make the lives of these animals um, as good as possible. And I I think certainly in the case with my rats, I have no doubt that their lives are better than the lives of a large number of pet rats, just because they're having these wonderful enriching experiences all the time.
0: Okay. Well, thank you so much for coming on to the show. Uh, I think that's all the time we have. Um, Everybody, thanks for listening to GradCast. Uh, This has been Alex and Romina here with Caroline uh, Strang. Thanks for listening.
1: That's all for this week. If you want to send us some feedback or if you want to come on the show yourself, email us at gradcastradio at gmail.com. Be sure to hook us up on social media, on Twitter,
0: we're at Gradcast Radio, and look up Gradcast Radio also on Facebook. If you want to subscribe to the podcast, the podcast is located at gradcast.podbean.com
1: and it's on iTunes. And while you're there, why don't you leave us a review? It really helps us out. We'll see you guys next week.